coming up on Crossing the Lane Lines. So as I finally made the Olympic team in 2004, the very first question um, that came out of the reporter's mouth in 2004 at trials was, what, what does it feel like to be the first black woman to make a U.S. Olympic swim team? And that statement, you know, my answer was, um, you know, I'm proud to be the first, but I don't want to be the last. In 2004, Maritza McClendon became the first African-American woman to make an Olympic team. But with this triumph came the burden of representing an entire community. Today, in her own words, she'll talk about her swimming career, the rewards, accolades, and yes, the racism that she endured. Stay tuned. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, and you're listening to Crossing the Lane Lines. When the women's 100-meter record holder and current gold medalist, Simone Manuel, is interviewed about her accomplishments, the first question usually goes like this. How does it feel being the first black woman to... Although she doesn't mind answering when questions are phrased this way, no other athletes on the podium or deck has to deal with it. Our guest today can relate to Simone's hardship. She set the standard for Simone Manuel, Cullen Jones, Leah Neal, and Anthony Irvin, just to name a few. Maritza McClendon is a 27-time All-American with 11 NCAA titles, the first African-American to break an individual and world record in swimming, and in 2004, she was the first black woman to make a U.S. Olympic team, winning a silver medal in the women's 4 by 100 meter freestyle relay. I could go on and on about her extraordinary accomplishments in the water, but that would take up the entire show. So with that, Maritza McClendon, welcome to Crossing the Lane Lines. Aw, Najee, thank you so much. What a great introduction. It's great to have you on the show, Maritza. Can you take us back to when you first began in your swimming career? How old were you, and when was it that you knew you were a very good swimmer? <laughs> Yeah, so my my swimming blood, I guess, started very young. You know, my I grew up in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, we were surrounded by water. That was kind of like the thing that my mom would do is just take me to the beach and um, any body of water, to be honest. She was just like, I know you like the water. Let's go. But the one thing, two things. One thing, I was completely fearless. So while she knew that I enjoyed water, I didn't necessarily know how to, to be safe. So she put, like, floaties on me. She had this like just a way of tracking me. I'd have a really bright suit. So she kind of keep an eye on me, but she was also very close by to making sure that I wouldn't, you know, test the waters in the deep end or get too far into the waves or anything like that. And then at the same time, you know, when I was about six years old, I was actually diagnosed with scoliosis. So my doctor actually, thankfully, um, prescribed swimming as the medical remedy to kind of get started on working on the flexibility of my back. You know, I had to work on my posture outside of the on my everyday, uh, on a daily basis when I was walking around and things like that and how I sat in a chair. And um, what started out as, you know, just a, just a simple backyard swim lesson and a swim, summer swim program turned into something that I absolutely loved. So, you know, fast forward even, you know, I started that at six years old. By the time I was seven, I looked at my mom and I said, hey, I really want to do this every day. So she did her research found a swim team down in Puerto Rico and 
that's where it started. I literally started competitive swim at seven. Can't say that I was the fastest swimmer by any means, um, but it was just something that she saw just lit my eyes up and, and warmed her heart that she was just like, okay, this seems like the thing that she's going to do. Um, you know, I was involved in a couple other things and just very active as a kid, but the turning point, you know, my family and I moved from Puerto Rico to Tampa, Florida when I was about nine years old. So my turning point in my swimming career, um, you know, was actually when I was about 12 years old. I had been swimming for in the States for about three years. And, you know, my team, my, my coach was amazing, very supportive, pushed me, um, you know, continued to foster that love that I had for the sport. And, you know, I went to a meet when I was about 12, 12 years old and happened to make my uh, junior national cut, which was very unexpected. Um, I was at the stage where I was just swimming to, you know, win races. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of kids that can relate out there, even adults. Um, you just kind of love to bring home medals and ribbons and things like that for your accomplishments. And that was kind of the mindset that I had. And when I made my first junior national cut, I, it, something clicked in me. I was like, oh, you know, I actually do have some pretty good talent in this sport. You know, what what else can I do to get to the next level? Um, you know, and I spoke to my coach and talked about doing doubles at swim practice and, you know, doing a little bit more dry land exercises. And, you know, for those of you who don't know what dry land is, it's really cross training, you know, anything from running, jumping jacks, push-ups, um, you know, a lot of those cardio activities that we could do, med ball training, um, things like that were incorporated. So literally started out as my mom needed to make sure I was safe. My doctor said swimming is a perfect, um, was also a perfect exercise for my back. Uh, had a mindset of like, this is fun. I love it. I love competing. I love racing. And then it just kind of clicked at 12 when, you know, I made it to a really high level at a, at a young age where it's kind of sparked a new, new desire to figure out how to get better. As I mentioned in my introduction, Simone Manuel is constantly being asked how it feels to be the first African-American woman or African-American period to do thus and so. How was it for you when you had the spotlight on you at the games in Athens back in 2004, what was the pressure like being the first black woman from the U.S. to compete in the Olympics? You know, it's it's interesting because I think that that topic was a hot topic anytime I swam, especially leading into 2000 Olympics. I was fresh off my freshman year in college career, um, won NCAA's, headed into Olympic trials um, shortly after NCAA's, and was slated to make the Olympic team. So even before 2004, there was chatter of like, who was going to be the first, you know, there's barriers that needed to be broken. It was, it was definitely a media topic that people noticed. And, you know, unfortunately I didn't make it in 2000. Um, and a lot of it was various pressures, parent pressure, media pressure, self pressure, um, you know, it just wasn't the right time, to be honest. And, you know, that is also the same year that Anthony Irvin had made the Olympic team. So he became the first um, black person to make, um, person of, of, of black background to make the Olympic team. And they're still, in 2004, leading into 2004, still hadn't been a female on the Olympic team. So the pressure started before the Olympics. It was at Olympic trials. All the articles that I had to do was, a topic, topic of conversation, usually the first <laughs> topic of conversation. 
Um, so I was definitely well aware of the barriers that hadn't been broken. Um, in 2000, it probably made me a little bit more nervous because I had a lot of pressure wanting to make the Olympic team, but also didn't want to let anybody else down for not breaking a barrier, right? Like throughout my swimming career, I was constantly aware of being the only black person at pool decks, on swim teams, you know, at events, things like that. So as I finally made the Olympic team in 2004, the very first question um, that came out of the reporter's mouth in 2004 at trials was, what, what does it feel like to be the first black woman to make a U.S. Olympic swim team? And that statement, you know, my answer was, um, you know, I'm proud to be the first, but I don't want to be the last. And to this day, that statement is is 100% true. You know, thankfully, we have had Leah come come around. We have Cullen Jones. We have Simone who won the gold in 2016. And um, you know, it's it, the the list is starting to grow, which is absolutely amazing. And while the the pressure, you know, we're still continuing to deal with it. I know Simone gets it. Leah gets it. Cullen's gotten it. Um, you know, I I grew up with it as well. It's it's something that we are we are are ready to acknowledge, right? Like these barriers have to be broken. We want to increase the visibility of getting more black people into the water, getting them more aware that, you know, we can swim. We're breaking those myths. We are showing them we can swim fast. We're we can all be water safe. We're also being educational about the fact that, you know, Back in 2004, 70% of African-American children didn't know how to swim. 2020, we're down to 64%. It's still a huge number. We've made a lot of progress, but it's still a huge number to the fact where we're not going to stop talking about it. It still needs to be a topic of conversation in our communities. So, you know, I think there's, there's, a, there's a balance of, yeah, the media wants to bring this pressure about being the first and breaking barriers, but at the same time, that's a great platform to use to bring up that next generation that, you know, make it welcome to the sport that everybody should learn how to swim and anybody can be successful and be an Olympic black swimmer. Recently, we had Ebony Roseman, the executive director of Black Kids Swim on the show. And we talked about the loneliness and isolation that many kids of color and in particular black children feel on the pool deck when they look around and see no one that looks like them. Was that your experience as well? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely, um, you know, it, it's 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 very tough to have certain situations that happen to you because of the color of your skin, you and not being able to have somebody who looks like you to say, you know, to to say this happened, and have them understand. So when you are part of a predominantly white sport like swimming. There's instances that have happened, you know, from, you know, I, I, and I still hear it to this day, unfortunately, of people being left, you know, black kids being left out of certain activities that the rest of their team is doing, not getting invited to, um, you know, somebody's birthday party, um, to, you know, getting made fun of because they don't look like everybody else, getting made fun of because their hair looks different. You know, the, the excuses um, and the situations are endless. And it's it's definitely a very um, it can be very lonely because you like I said you just don't have anybody to to really relate to that situation and I think that's why we continue to to bring it forth you know like 
introduce all these amazing black swimmers that are coming through this sport and let them know that, you know, we know what you guys are going through. We give them an outlet, give them someone to relate to directly and, and have those conversations. And then now we're getting to the point where everybody should be having these conversations. It's going to be uncomfortable at first, but let's have a more diverse and inclusive lens for everybody, right? And and let's demand some change. Stick up for your the friends that don't look like you. You know, be be that support system, be that encouraging voice in their corner that will, you know, keep them on that path of success. The reason why I asked the previous question is because I recall in an interview you gave recently, you spoke about an incident that happened at an event called Ultra Swim. And I'm wondering if you could speak about that and how it impacted you. Yeah, so I was actually at a meet in Charlotte, North Carolina. Back then it was called the Ultra Swim. <laughs> um, and now I believe it's the Tier Pro Swim Series. So, you know, it's it's a it's a summer meet that a lot of the top athletes come to. Um, it's more, it's bigger than a, a local meet. So you'll have kids from all over the country, teams from all over the country, even some international teams will come down. Like I remember Canada would be there. Jamaica would be there. Barbados would come up. Um, so you have a, you know, pretty good, pretty good array of, of, of people coming in cultures. Um, and then it's in Charlotte. There's a very high population of black people in Charlotte. Remember going to a hotel and there was a there was an event going on where there was a lot of black people in our actual hotel in the lobby. And I remember I was walking with my teammates from the pool across the street was our hotel. Walking into our hotel and you know, I and I knew this of this teammate. I knew they felt uncomfortable in certain situations. And the minute we walked into the lobby, it was, it was like a, a panic came across and this, this teammate couldn't wait to get to the elevator, you know, was pretty much rushing us to come on, like, let's go. We got to get moving. Mind you, we didn't have anywhere to go. We're coming back from practice or from warmups and we didn't really have anywhere to go, but sit in our hotel room, maybe a nap. I don't know. Um, you know, and, and they kept trying to hit the elevator button to get it to open, opened, you know, all of us walk in when it closes, she was like, I can't believe there's so many and dropped the N word. And it was, I, it's like, I, I kind of knew this person was, um, had an upbringing at home that was very different than mine. So to hear her hear this person acknowledge and say that word I was taken back like I had no I froze I had no idea what to do I was in shock um, everybody else in the elevator was shocked it's not like any of my teammates stood up and said you shouldn't have said that you know it was literally complete silence until we all got to our room and I never spoke of that situation I have no idea if my teammates ever spoke of that situation never told my coach never told my mom nothing and, you know, I look back and it was, it's, it's heartbreaking to know that, sh that that person was uncomfortable around people who look like me. And, you know, I am, I never showed any kind of, you know, I never treated my teammates any differently because of the, because they didn't look like me. And I would have hoped that my teammates would have done the same. But in that instance, it was definitely very hurtful, very alarming. Um, to have it happen 
uh, you know, in that, in that moment. And I didn't do anything and nobody else did either. And I know that that happens more often than it needs to. I'm very sorry that you had to deal with that kind of an unfortunate incident. Now, I want to go on to talk about an incident that recently happened that shook the country. On May 25th of this year, George Floyd was lynched by a white police officer in Minneapolis, Minnesota. His death caused worldwide protests demanding defunding the police and an end to systemic racism. Now, since that time, there has been a new shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by a white policeman. Over the course of the last several months, USA Swimming has been confronted about its own history of racism and exclusion. In your opinion, where is the swim community on this issue and where does it need to go? You know, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Where is our swim community when it comes to racism? You know, it's it's interesting because you look at the statistics about USA Swimming and the membership. Only 1.6% of the USA Swimming membership is black or identify as black. And you look at what's happening out in society and the fact that we're labeled because of the color of our skin. We are considered more violent. We are, you know, I mean, I could go down the list and it's, it's pretty crazy that you can assume this of somebody because of the color of your skin. When it comes to swimming or even, I would say even sports in general too, you get it. You get the, the you're labeled, um, you know, whether you don't have the right body, to, quote unquote body type for that sport it's huge in swimming. <laughs> you know, if you don't have the right body type because you're a black swimmer, you're, you're immediately stand, you immediately stand out to everybody, which is crazy, right? You think about the girl up in Alaska, the young lady who got disqualified hmm. because her suit fit differently on her. And I can tell you, anybody can go to a swim meet, national level, local le- level, um, regional level, there are so many girls out there that are wearing their suits up their butt, but they are not being disqualified for the way their suit fits on them. Why is this girl from Alaska being called out? It's because of the color of your skin. Flat out. I've heard another instance, even on not just the swimming community, the swimmers, but the coaches. I have a friend here in Atlanta who she was on the pool deck with her she's a she's a coach like i said a black coach was on the pool deck with her swimmers wearing your typical coach's attire polo shirt khakis you know whatever ready ready to coach and um somebody had come up to her a parent had come down from the stands looking for somebody else and they got in trouble for being on the pool deck they're like man you know Parents aren't a lot on pool deck. They try to keep it to the swimmers and coaches. And this this mom made it through on the pool deck and then got in trouble for it. And she was like, well, that, that lady over there, she's the nanny. Why is she on the pool deck? And I kid you not, my friend was just like, she she's very vocal. So she had no problem putting that lady in her place. But just to hear her tell that story, I was just like, she, she thought you're in coach's attire 
but you because you're black, she thinks you're the nanny and you're around black and white children. That's unreal. You know, I think that there's definitely like, you know, there's definitely people out there and I think with any for any company you have some that are um a little bit more racist than others. And you the companies that are more accepting of different backgrounds have strong leadership. I think that for years, USA Swimming has not acknowledged the issues. They knew about them. They have not acknowledged them. And I think that there is definitely, when you ask me, is there room for improvement? 100% there is room for improvement because it's about um, standing up for what's right, speaking up for all all people, especially black people at this time and not being afraid to do so. I think that there's definitely some mindsets, even from the USA Swimming headquarters, that still need to be, um, I don't want to say course corrected, but, you know, adjusted to really have a different perspective on what people are dealing with. One shoe, one swimsuit doesn't fit all, some pun intended there. Um, but there, there's definitely some room to change. But the, the good thing, and I'm hopeful, I think, <laughs> is that USA Swimming is a little bit more open to understanding where they need to go, you know, and I think that, you know, they've, we are, we being myself, Simone, Colin, Leah, you know, a few of my other black, black teammates, black swimmers, um, we're talking to them, you know, we're, we're having these conversations about, you know, here are the issues that have been going on for years, for decades that have been ignored, what are you going to do about it? So we're we're challenging them, and I'm hopeful that things will um, hopefully head in a in a positive direction when it comes to that. But I think that this country is still stuck in its old ways, and in, in many ways, but there is also a really strong moment that's happening now where more than just Black people are demanding change. And hopefully we can continue to, you know, grow towards more unity um, and more acceptance of people being different. And finally, you're very active in teaching both children and adults of color to learn how to swim, seeing it as I do, a life skill first and a sport second. Now, I found in my own coaching experience that folks that look like us tend to continue on in swimming when they're taught by other black folk. I'm wondering if you can give me your thoughts on the need for more black coaches, lifeguards, and water safety instructors. Yeah, I I I 100% agree with, you know, people are inspired, especially young kids are inspired by, you know, people who look like them. Athletes who look like them. You definitely have those other young kids who you know, everybody's inspired by LeBron James. Everybody was inspired by Michael Jordan and things like that. But when it comes to the swim community, there's so few of us, right? There's so few, like you said, lifeguards, swim coaches, um, you know, elite black swimmers. <laughs> there's still so few of us. And I think there is something to be said about, you know, how do we how do we start to build a network that, opens up the opportunity of aquatic professionals 
and that we foster like the need for more you know there there's an opportunity to have more swim coaches there's an opportunity to mentor the the swim coaches that can come into swimming there is a, the ability to have more swim instructors that are teaching those learn to swim kids and getting them onto swim teams that are that are black as well so i think that all in all there is lots of opportunity for change definitely think there is something to be said about having someone there to teach you that looks like you to inspire you that looks like you makes a huge difference so if you're thinking about you know a marketing campaign if you want to attract more black kids you need to show black instructors and black kids as well but don't you know i want to caution people to say you know don't make it look fake like this make it be a reality so if that person if a family sees that and be like oh i'm going to go check out that ymca or that pool they should be able to walk into that set your location and see exactly what they saw on that flyer like it's it's about fostering um you know more more diverse and more inclusive nature and when it comes to swimming there's very few of us and we need to get more of us in it we have been speaking to maritza mcclendon olympic silver medalist 27-time All-American, 11-time NCAA title holder, and the first African-American to break an individual and world record. Maritza McClendon, we wish you and your family well during these turbulent times in our country, and thank you so much for joining us on Crossing the Lane Lines. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And um, thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing me to have a platform to speak more about, you know, the topics that need to be talked about, especially for our Black community. On September 23rd, an impaneled jury chose not to indict three white Louisville police officers with the murder of Breonna Taylor. One officer, Brett Hankinson, was indicted for wanton endangerment for shooting into an adjacent apartment during the fatal raid to kill Breonna Taylor in March. Tens of thousands took to the streets in cities across the country demanding justice for Breonna, her family, and defunding the police. We here at the Black Swim Collective join in the outrage over this miscarriage of justice. L.A. Lakers superstar LeBron James tweeted, quote, I'm devastated, hurt, sad, mad. We want justice for Brianna. Yet justice was met for her neighbor's apartment walls and not her beautiful life, close quote. Other athletes from the WNBA and NFL also voiced their disappointment and frustration over the verdict. In the midst of all this, the Attorney General of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, said, quote, There will be celebrities, influencers, and activists who, having never lived in Kentucky, will try to tell us how to feel, suggesting that they understand the facts of this case and that they know our community and the Commonwealth better than we do. But they don't. Let's not give in to their attempts to influence our thinking or capture our emotions, close quote. Mr. Attorney General, one does not have to live in Kentucky to see that many in your state are outraged by this verdict. We do not have to tell people in your great state how to feel. It's shown on television screens and social media platforms all over the world as thousands march each night to find the 9 p.m. curfew and risking arrest 
in the name of justice. Yourself and the powers that be may try and silence us, but our voices will cry out. You may try and beat us, but we will rise. You may try and jail us, but you will never put the chains of racism on our minds ever again. And we will be heard. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali for Crossing the Lane Lines, signing off.